Chapter Six, Part Four of *The Stones of Venice*, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. *The Stones of Venice*, Volume Two, by John Ruskin. *The Nature of Gothic*, Part Four. Let us, then, endeavour briefly to mark the real relations of these three vast ranks of men, whom I shall call, for convenience in speaking of them, purists, naturalists, and sensualists. Not that these terms express their real characters, but I know no word, and cannot coin a convenient one, which would accurately express the opposite of purist and I keep the terms purist and naturalist in order to comply, as far as possible, with the established usage of language on the continent. Now observe, in saying that nearly everything presented to us in nature has mingling in it of good and evil, I do not mean that nature is conceivably improvable, or that anything that God has made could be called evil, if we could see far enough into its uses, but that, with respect to immediate effects or appearances, it may be so, just as the hard rind or bitter kernel of a fruit may be an evil to the eater, though in the one is the protection of the fruit, and in the other its continuance. The purist, therefore, does not mend nature, but receives from nature and from God that which is good for him, while the sensualist fills himself with the husks that the swine did eat. The three classes may, therefore, be likened to men reaping wheat, of which the purists take the fine flour, and the sensualists the chaff and straw, but the naturalists take all home, and make their cake of the one, and their couch of the other. For instance, we know more certainly every day that whatever appears to us harmful in the universe has some beneficent or necessary operation that the storm which destroys a harvest brightens the sunbeams for harvests yet unsown, and that the volcano which buries a city preserves a thousand from destruction. But the evil is not for the time less fearful, because we have learned it to be necessary, and we easily understand the timidity or the tenderness of the spirit which would withdraw itself from the presence of destruction, and create in its imagination a world of which the peace should be unbroken in which the sky should not darken nor the sea rage in which the leaf should not change nor the blossom wither that man is greater however who contemplates with an equal mind the alternations of terror and beauty who not rejoicing less beneath the sunny sky can bear also to watch the bars of twilight narrowing on the horizon and not less sensible to the blessing of the peace of nature, can rejoice in the magnificence of the ordinances by which that peace is protected and secured. But separated from both by an immeasurable distance would be the man who delighted in convulsion and disease for their own sake, who found his daily food in the disorder of nature mingled with the suffering of humanity, and watched joyfully at the right hand of the angel whose appointed work is to destroy as well as to accuse, while the corners of the house of feasting were struck by the wind from the wilderness. And far more is this true, when the subject of contemplation is humanity itself. The passions of which the end is the continuance of the race, 
the indignation which is to arm it against injustice or strengthen it to resist wanton injury and the fear which lies at the root of prudence reverence and awe are all honourable and beautiful so long as man is regarded in his relations to the existing world the religious purist striving to conceive him withdrawn from those relations effaces from the countenance the traces of all transitory passion illumines it with holy hope and love and seals it with the serenity of heavenly peace he conceals the forms of the body by the deep folded garment or else represents them under severely chastened types and would rather paint them emaciated by the fast or pale from the torture than strengthened by exertion or flushed by emotion but the great naturalist takes the human being in its wholeness in its mortal as well as its spiritual strength capable of sounding and sympathizing with the whole range of its passions he brings one majestic harmony out of them all he represents it fearlessly in all its acts and thoughts in its haste in its anger in its sensuality and its pride as well as in its fortitude or faith but makes it noble in them all he casts aside the veil from the body and beholds the mysteries of its form like an angel looking down on an inferior creature there is nothing which he is reluctant to behold nothing that he is ashamed to confess with all that lives triumphing falling or suffering he claims kindred either in majesty or in mercy yet standing in a sort afar off unmoved even in the deepness of his sympathy for the spirit within him is too thoughtful to be grieved too brave to be appalled and too pure to be polluted how far beneath these two ranks of men shall we place in the scale of being those whose pleasure is only in sin or in suffering who habitually contemplate humanity in poverty or decrepitude fury or sensuality whose works are either temptations to its weakness or triumphs over its ruin and recognize no other subjects for thought or admiration than the subtlety of the robber the rage of the soldier or the joy of the sybarite it seems strange when thus definitely stated that such a school should exist yet consider a little what gaps and blanks would disfigure our gallery and chamber walls in places that we have long approached with reverence if every picture every statue were removed from them of which the subject was either the vice or the misery of mankind portrayed without any moral purpose consider the innumerable groups having reference merely to various forms of passion low or high drunken revels and brawls amongst peasants gambling or fighting scenes among soldiers amours and intrigues among every class brutal battle-pieces banditti subjects gluts of torture and death in famine wreck or slaughter for the sake merely of the excitement that quickening and suppling of the dull spirit that cannot be gained for it but by bathing in blood afterward to wither back into stained and stiffened apathy and then that whole vast false heaven of sensual passion full of nymphs satyrs graces goddesses and i know not what from its high seventh circle in correggio's antiope down to the grecized ballet dancers and smirking cupids of the parisian upholsterer sweep away all this remorselessly and see how much art we should have left and yet these are only the grossest manifestations of the tendency of the school 
there are subtler yet not less certain signs of it in the works of men who stand high in the world's list of sacred painters i doubt not that the reader was surprised when i named murillo among the men of this third rank yet go into the dulwich gallery and meditate for a little over that much celebrated picture of the two beggar boys one eating lying on the ground the other standing beside him we have among our own painters one who cannot indeed be set beside murillo as a painter of madonnas for he is a pure naturalist and never having seen a madonna does not paint any but who as a painter of beggar or peasant boys may be set beside murillo or anyone else w hunt he loves peasant boys because he finds them more roughly and picturesquely dressed and more healthily coloured than others and he paints all that he sees in them fearlessly all the health and humour and freshness and vitality together with such awkwardness and stupidity and what else of negative or positive harm there may be in the creature but yet so that on the whole we love it and find it perhaps even beautiful or if not at least we see that there is a capability of good in it rather than of evil and all is lighted up by a sunshine and sweet colour that makes the smock-frock as precious as cloth of gold but look at those two ragged and vicious vagrants that murillo has gathered out of the street you smile at first because they are eating so naturally and their roguery is so complete but is there anything else than roguery there or was it well for the painter to give his time to the painting of those repulsive and wicked children do you feel moved with any more charity towards children as you look at them are we the least more likely to take any interest in ragged schools or to help the next pauper child that comes in our way because the painter has shown us a cunning beggar feeding greedily mark the choice of the act he might have shown hunger in other ways and given interest to even this act of eating by making the face wasted or the eye wistful but he did not care to do this he delighted merely in the disgusting manner of eating the food filling the cheek the boy is not hungry else he would not turn round to talk and grin as he eats but observe another point in the lower figure it lies so that the sole of the foot is turned towards the spectator not because it would have lain less easily in another attitude but that the painter may draw and exhibit the grey dust ingrained in the foot do not call this the painting of nature it is mere delight in foulness the lesson if there be any in the picture is not one whit the stronger we all know that a beggar's bare foot cannot be clean there is no need to thrust its degradation into the light as if no human imagination were vigorous enough for its conception the position of the sensualists in treatment of landscape is less distinctly marked than in that of the figure because even the wildest passions of nature are noble but the inclination is manifested by carelessness in marking generic form in trees and flowers by their preferring confused and irregular arrangements of foliage or foreground to symmetrical and simple grouping by their general choice of such picturesqueness as results from decay disorder and disease rather than of that which is consistent with the perfection of the things in which it is found and by their imperfect rendering of the elements of strength and beauty in all things 
I propose to work out this subject fully in the last volume of Modern Painters, but I trust that enough has been here said to enable the reader to understand the relations of the three great classes of artists, and therefore also the kinds of morbid condition into which the two higher, for the last has no other than a morbid condition, are liable to fall, for, since the function of the naturalists is to represent, as far as may be, the whole of nature, and the purists to represent what is absolutely good for some special purpose or time, it is evident that both are liable to error from shortness of sight, and the last also from weakness of judgment. I say, in the first place, both may err from shortness of sight, from not seeing all that there is in nature, seeing only the outsides of things, or those points of them which bear least on the matter in hand. For instance, a modern continental naturalist sees the anatomy of a limb thoroughly, but does not see its colour against the sky, which latter fact is to a painter far the more important of the two. And because it is always easier to see the surface than the depth of things, the full sight of them requiring the highest powers of penetration, sympathy and imagination, the world is full of vulgar naturalists, not sensualists. Observe, not men who delight in evil, but men who never see the deepest good, and who bring discredit on all painting of nature by the little that they discover in her. And the purest, besides being liable to this same short-sightedness, is liable to fatal errors of judgment, for he may think that good which is not so, and that the highest good which is the least and thus the world is full of vulgar purists who bring discredit on all selection by the silliness of their choice and this the more because the very becoming of a purist is commonly indicative of some slight degree of weakness readiness to be offended or narrowness of understanding of the ends of things the greatest men being in all times of art naturalists without any exception and the greatest purists being those who approach nearest to the naturalists as Benozotto Gozzoli and Perugino. Hence there is a tendency in the naturalists to despise the purists, and in the purists to be offended with the naturalists, not understanding them and confounding them with the sensualists, and this is grievously harmful to both. Of the various forms of resultant mischief, it is not here the place to speak. The reader may already be somewhat wearied with a statement which has led us apparently so far from our immediate subject, but the digression was necessary, in order that I might clearly define the sense in which I use the word naturalism when I state it to be the third most essential characteristic of Gothic architecture. I mean that the Gothic builders belong to the central or greatest rank in both the classifications of artists which we have just made, that, considering all artists as either men of design, men of facts, or men of both, the Gothic builders were men of both, and that again, considering all artists as either purists, naturalists, or sensualists, the Gothic builders were naturalists. I say first that the Gothic builders were of that central class which unites fact with design, but that the part of the work which was more especially their own was the truthfulness. Their power of artistical invention or arrangement was not greater than that of Romanesque and Byzantine workmen. By those workmen they were taught their principles, and from them received their models of design. But to the ornamental feeling and rich fancy of the Byzantine, the Gothic builder added a love of fact which is never found in the South. 
both Greek and Roman used conventional foliage in their ornament, passing into something that was not foliage at all, knotting itself into strange cup-like buds or clusters, and growing out of the lifeless rods instead of stems. The Gothic sculptor received these types, at first, as things that ought to be, just as we have a second time received them, but he could not rest in them. He saw that there was no veracity in them, no knowledge, no vitality. Do what he would, he could not help liking the true leaves better, and cautiously, a little at a time, he put more of nature into his work, until at last it was all true. Retaining, nevertheless, every valuable character of the original, well-disciplined and designed arrangement. Nor is it only in external and visible subject that the Gothic workman wrought for truth. He is as firm in his rendering of imaginative as of actual truth. That is to say, when an idea would have been by a Roman or a Byzantine symbolically represented, the Gothic mind realized it to the utmost. For instance, the purgatorial fire is represented in the mosaic of Torquello, Romanesque, as a red stream, longitudinally striped like a riband, descending out of the throne of Christ, and gradually extending itself to envelop the wicked. When we are once informed what this means, it is enough for its purpose. But the Gothic inventor does not leave the sign in need of interpretation. He makes the fire as like real fire as he can, and in the porch of Saint-Maclou, at Rouen, the sculptured flames burst out of the Hades gate, and flicker up in writhing tongues of stone through the interstices of the niches, as if the church itself were on fire. This is an extreme instance, but it is all the more illustrative of the entire difference in temper and thought between the two schools of art, and of the intense love of veracity which influenced the Gothic design. I do not say that this love of veracity is always healthy in its operation. I have above noticed the errors into which it falls from despising design, and there is another kind of error noticeable in the instance just given, in which the love of truth is too hasty, and seizes on a surface truth instead of an inner one. For, in representing the Hades fire, it is not the mere form of the flame which needs most to be told, but its unquenchableness, its divine ordainment and limitation, and its inner fierceness, not physical and material, but in being the expression of the wrath of God. And these things are not to be told by imitating the fire that flashes out of a bundle of sticks. If we think over his symbol a little, we shall perhaps find that the Romanesque builder told more truth in that likeness of a blood-red stream flowing between definite shores and out of God's throne, and expanding, as if fed by a perpetual current, into the lake wherein the wicked are cast, than the Gothic builder in those torch-flickerings about his niches, but this is not to our immediate purpose. I am not at present to insist upon the faults into which the love of truth was led in the later Gothic times, but on the feeling itself, as a glorious and peculiar characteristic of the northern builders. For observe, it is not, even in the above instance, love of truth, but want of thought which causes the fault. The love of truth, as such, is good, but when it is misdirected, by thoughtlessness or overexcited by vanity, and either seizes on facts of small value, 
or gathers them chiefly that it may boast of its grasp and apprehension its work may well become dull or offensive yet let us not therefore blame the inherent love of facts but the incautiousness of their selection and impertinence of their statement i said in the second place that gothic work when referred to the arrangement of all art as purist naturalist or sensualist was naturalist this character follows necessarily on its extreme love of truth prevailing over the sense of beauty and causing it to take delight in portraiture of every kind and to express the various characters of the human countenance and form as it did the varieties of leaves and the ruggedness of branches and this tendency is both increased and ennobled by the same christian humility which we saw expressed in the first character of gothic work its rudeness for as that resulted from a humility which confessed the imperfection of the workman so this naturalist portraiture is rendered more faithful by the humility which confesses the imperfection of the subject the greek sculptor could neither bear to confess his own feebleness nor to tell the faults of the forms that he portrayed but the christian workman believing that all is finally to work together for good freely confesses both and neither seeks to disguise his own roughness of work nor his subject's roughness of make yet this frankness being joined for the most part with depth of religious feeling in other directions and especially with charity there is sometimes a tendency to purism in the best gothic sculpture so that it frequently reaches great dignity of form and tenderness of expression yet never so as to lose the veracity of portraiture wherever portraiture is possible not exalting its kings into demigods nor its saints into archangels but giving what kingliness and sanctity was in them to the full mixed with the due record of their faults and this in the most part with a great indifference like that of scripture history which sets down with unmoved and unexcusing resoluteness the virtues and errors of all men of whom it speaks often leaving the reader to form his own estimate of them without an indication of the judgment of the historian and this veracity is carried out by the gothic sculptors in the minuteness and generality as well as the equity of their delineation for they do not limit their art to the portraiture of saints and kings but introduce the most familiar scenes and most simple subjects filling up the backgrounds of scripture histories with vivid and curious representations of the commonest incidents of daily life and availing them of every occasion in which either as a symbol or an explanation of a scene or time the things familiar to the eye of the workman could be introduced and made of account hence gothic sculpture and painting are not only full of valuable portraiture of the greatest men but copious records of all the domestic customs and inferior arts of the ages in which it flourished there is however one direction in which the naturalism of the gothic workman is peculiarly manifested and this direction is even more characteristic of the school than the naturalism itself i mean their peculiar fondness for the forms of vegetation in rendering the various circumstances of daily life egyptian and ninevite sculpture is as frank and as diffuse as the gothic from the highest pomps of state or triumphs of battle to the most trivial domestic arts and amusements 
all is taken advantage of to fill the field of granite with the perpetual interest of a crowded drama and the early lombardic and romanesque sculpture is equally copious in its description of the familiar circumstances of war and the chase but in all the scenes portrayed by the workmen of these nations vegetation occurs only as an explanatory accessory the reed is introduced to mark the course of the river or the tree to mark the covert of the wild beast or the ambush of the enemy but there is no especial interest in the forms of the vegetation strong enough to induce them to make it a subject of separate and accurate study again among the nations who followed the arts of design exclusively the forms of foliage introduced were meagre and general and their real intricacy and life were neither admired nor expressed but to the gothic workman the living foliage became a subject of intense affection and he struggled to render all its characters with as much accuracy as was compatible with the laws of his design and the nature of his material not unfrequently tempted in his enthusiasm to transgress the one and disguise the other there is a peculiar significancy in this indicative both of higher civilization and gentler temperament than had before been manifested in architecture rudeness and the love of change which we have insisted upon as the first elements of gothic are also elements common to all healthy schools but here is a softer element mingled with them peculiar to the gothic itself the rudeness or ignorance which would have been painfully exposed in the treatment of the human form are still not so great as to prevent the successful rendering of the wayside herbage and the love of change which becomes morbid and feverish in following the haste of the hunter and the rage of the combatant is at once soothed and satisfied as it watches the wandering of the tendril and the budding of the flower nor is this all the new direction of mental interest marks an infinite change in the means and the habits of life the nations whose chief support was in the chase whose chief interest was in the battle whose chief pleasure was in the banquet would take small care respecting the shapes of leaves and flowers and notice little in the forms of the forest trees which sheltered them except the signs indicative of the wood which would make the toughest lance the closest roof or the clearest fire the affectionate observation of the grace and outward character of vegetation is the sure sign of a more tranquil and gentle existence sustained by the gifts and gladdened by the splendour of the earth in that careful distinction of species and richness of delicate and undisturbed organization which characterize the gothic design there is the history of rural and thoughtful life influenced by habitual tenderness and devoted to subtle inquiry and every discriminating and delicate touch of the chisel as it rounds the petal or guides the branch is a prophecy of the development of the entire body of the natural sciences beginning with that of medicine of the recovery of literature and the establishment of the most necessary principles of domestic wisdom and national peace i have before alluded to the strange and vain supposition that the original conception of gothic architecture had been derived from vegetation from the symmetry of avenues and the interlacing of branches it is a supposition which never could have existed for a moment in the mind of any person acquainted with early gothic but however idle as a theory it is most valuable as a testimony to the character of the perfected style 
It is precisely because the reverse of this theory is the fact, because the Gothic did not arise out of, but develop itself into, a resemblance to vegetation, that this resemblance is so instructive as an indication of the temper of the builders. It was no chance suggestion of the form of an arch from the bending of a bow, but a gradual and continual discovery of a beauty in natural forms, which could be more and more perfectly transferred into those of stone, that influenced at once the heart of the people and the form of the edifice. The Gothic architecture arose in massy and mountainous strength, axe-hewn and iron-bound, block heaved upon block by the monk's enthusiasm and the soldier's force, and cramped and stanchioned into such weight of grisly wall as might bury the anchoret in darkness, and beat back the utmost storm of battle, suffering but by the same narrow crosslet the passing of the sunbeam or of the arrow. Gradually, as that monkish enthusiasm became more thoughtful, and as the sound of war became more and more intermittent beyond the gates of the convent or the keep, the stony pillar grew slender, and the vaulted roof grew light, till they had wreathed themselves into the semblance of the summer woods at their fairest, and of the dead field-flowers, long trodden down in blood, sweet monumental statues were sent to bloom for ever beneath the porch of the temple, or the canopy of the tomb. Nor is it only as a sign of greater gentleness, or refinement of mind, but as a proof of the best possible direction of the refinement, that the tendency of the Gothic to the expression of vegetative life is to be admired. That sentence of Genesis, I have given thee every green herb for meat, like all the rest of the book, has a profound symbolical as well as a literal meaning. It is not merely the nourishment of the body, but the food of the soul that is intended. The green herb is, of all nature, that which is most essential to the healthy spiritual life of man. Most of us do not need fine scenery. The precipice and the mountain peak are not intended to be seen by all men. Perhaps their power is greatest over those who are unaccustomed to them. But trees and fields and flowers were made for all, and are necessary for all. God has connected the labour which is essential to the bodily sustenance with the pleasures which are healthiest for the heart. And while he has made the ground stubborn, he made its herbage fragrant, and its blossoms fair. The proudest architecture that man can build has no higher honour than to bear the image and recall the memory of that grass of the field which is, at once, the type and the support of his existence. The goodly building is then most glorious when it is sculptured into the likeness of the leaves of paradise, and the great Gothic spirit as we showed it to be noble in its disquietude, is also noble in its hold of nature. It is, indeed, like the dove of Noah, in that she found no rest upon the face of the waters, but like her in this also. Lo, in her mouth was an olive branch, plucked off. The fourth essential element of the Gothic mind was above stated to be the sense of the grotesque, but I shall defer the endeavour to define this most curious and subtle character until we have occasion to examine one of the divisions of the Renaissance schools, which was morbidly influenced by it. Volume 3, Chapter 3. It is the less necessary to insist upon it here, 
because every reader familiar with Gothic architecture must understand what I mean, and will, I believe, have no hesitation in admitting that the tendency to delight in fantastic and ludicrous, as well as in sublime images, is a universal instinct of the Gothic imagination. The fifth element above named was rigidity, and this character I must endeavour carefully to define, for neither the word I have used, nor any other that I can think of, will express it accurately. For I mean not merely stable, but active rigidity, the peculiar energy which gives tension to movement and stiffness to resistance, which makes the fiercest lightning forked rather than curved, and the stoutest oak branch angular rather than bending and is as much seen in the quivering of the lance as in the glittering of the icicle. I have before had occasion, Volume 1, Chapter 13, to note some manifestations of this energy or fixedness, but it must be still more attentively considered here, as it shows itself throughout the whole structure and decoration of Gothic work. Egyptian and Greek buildings stand, for the most part, by their own weight and mass, one stone passively incumbent on another. But in the Gothic vaults and traceries there is a stiffness analogous to that of the bones of a limb or fibres of a tree, an elastic tension and communication of force from part to part, and also a studious expression of this throughout every visible line of the building. And, in like manner, the Greek and Egyptian ornament is either mere surface engraving, as if the face of the wall had been stamped with a seal, or its lines are flowing, lithe and luxuriant. In either case, there is no expression of energy in the framework of the ornament itself. But the Gothic ornament stands out in prickly independence, and frosty fortitude, jutting into crockets and freezing into pinnacles, here starting up into a monster, there germinating into a blossom, anon knitting itself into a branch, alternately thorny, bossy, and bristly, or writhed into every form of nervous entanglement, but, even when most graceful, never for an instant languid, always quick-set, erring, if at all, ever on the side of brusquerie. The feelings or habits in the workman which give rise to this character in the work are more complicated and various than those indicated by any other sculptural expression hitherto named. There is, first, the habit of hard and rapid working, the industry of the tribes of the north, quickened by the coldness of the climate, and giving an expression of sharp energy to all they do, as above noted, volume 1, chapter 13, as opposed to the languor of the southern tribes, however much of fire there may be in the heart of that languor, for lava itself may flow languidly. There is also the habit of finding enjoyment in the signs of cold, which is never found, I believe, in the inhabitants of countries south of the Alps. Cold is to them an unredeemed evil, to be suffered and forgotten as soon as may be. But the long winter of the North forces the Goth, I mean the Englishman, Frenchman, Dane or German, if he would lead a happy life at all, to find sources of happiness in foul weather as well as fair, and to rejoice in the leafless as well as in the shady forest. And this we do with all our hearts, finding perhaps nearly as much contentment by the Christmas fire as in the summer sunshine, and gaining health and strength on the ice-fields of winter, as well as among the meadows of spring. 
so that there is nothing adverse or painful to our feelings in the cramped and stiffened structure of vegetation checked by cold. And instead of seeking, like the southern sculptor, to express only the softness of leafage nourished in all tenderness, and tempted into all luxuriance by warm winds and glowing rays, we find pleasure in dwelling upon the crabbed, perverse, and morose animation of plants that have known little kindness from earth or heaven, but, season after season, have had their best efforts palsied by frost, their brightest buds buried under snow, and their goodliest limbs lopped by tempest. End of section 15